2: Episode 25.
1: Yeah, that coffee must be kicking in, Cam.
2: Yes! Coffee is (laughs) kicking in!
1: (laughs) Coffee! And sausage.
2: And today on the show, we've done Philby, we've done Burgess, we're going to do the third most famous member of the famous Cambridge Five. Mm Mm-hmm. Donald McLean. Now, of course, he is mostly famous for being the only spy who was also a hit songmaker.
0: bye-bye, Miss American Pie my Chevy to
1: the levee But the levee
2: was, was dry And good old boys <laughs> were singing, singing Whiskey and, whiskey and rye. rye Singing, this will be the day today that I die this will be the day that I die. Had uh, uh, uh. you read the book of love? And you have faith in God above? No. Nope if the bible tells me so written by a bunch of gay drunks so do you believe in <laughs> rock and roll yes, yes. music save your mortal soul and can you teach me how to give a blowjob well i know that you're in love with him because i saw you fuck him in the gym you both tripped up. A- now, little known piece, little, little known fact, that that right. entire song was Spy Code. I did not know
1: that. Brilliant. All Spy Code.
2: Brilliant. I mean, if you're a communist spy, what better yeah. thing to do than to write a song about being an all-American buddy holly boy and uh, get it into the number, number one position on the charts? Number one song in the US for four weeks in 1972. Not many... Communist spy, Marxist can claim that. You know, so that was Don McLean. But
1: he did it, yeah. He did it. Good on you.
2: Uh, supposedly, if you don't know, that song was inspired by the death of Buddy Holly. Uh, oh. But then, when asked, when when Don McLean, the actual songwriter, was asked what American Pie meant, he said it means I don't have, I don't ever have to work again if I don't want to.
1: Ah, oh. huh.
2: Communist. Because he made so much money. Yeah, and he was a communist. Yeah, that's right. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, nice. Don McLean, our spy, was uh, another blue-blood Englishman, the son of Sir Donald McLean, a prominent mm-hmm. Liberal Party position. And like our other guys, he became a member of the Communist Party at uh, Cambridge and was recruited in 1934.
1: And yet, keep in mind that he was born on May 25th, 1913. The May 25th part will come back to be of some significance near the end of his story. So, yeah, so he's going to be one of these guys, and he's recruited by Theodore Teddy. How do you pronounce it? Malay? Malay? I don't know how to say it. But, yeah, this guy got around, and he was instructed (laughs) to give up his political activity you know, lie low, quit all this communism, communism, communism stuff, and join the diplomatic service so you can one day be in a position to help us fight the cause, which obviously at that point was uh, Nazi Germany.
2: Yeah, this Teddy Marley, who recruited him to work for the NKVD, uh, interesting character in his own right. He was a former Roman Catholic priest born in Hungary. Who apparently said he lost his faith during World War One on the battlefield?
1: I could see that.
2: So much for the old saying that there are no atheists in foxholes. <laughs> he exactly. was a Roman Catholic priest who lost his faith in a foxhole. Apparently, I read uh, some quotes from him. He said he looked around at the death of all these young men, and he said, "You know what?" Fuck yeah. you, God, if you do exist.
1: There's, there's, exactly. If this uh, is what you're going to let happen, yeah. Yeah.
2: Fuck you. Yeah. Um, now, Teddy Marley himself ended up, uh, as did many of these guys that recruited these spies, as a victim of Stalin's purges just a few Oops. years later.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um. He's going to disappear one day. But uh, I just wanted to mention that. So, so he's told to go into the diplomatic service. And as you can imagine, there's a very serious... Test you have to take. I think he spends what a year prepping for the civil service examinations. But again, McLean, like Philby, like Burgess, yes, he's a blue blood. He comes from the right uh, background and the right family and all that stuff. But he is a rather intelligent person and he uh, passes it. He passes the, um, excuse me, the. Excuse me, the civil service examination with first class honors. So here's another guy who's motivated, who is eventually going to reject being given money by the Soviets. And he's a very intelligent person who is going to believe in this cause, embrace this cause and do all he can to get information to Moscow because he thinks he's helping preserve world peace or something like that.
2: Mm. Now, you mentioned that he joined the civil service when he got out of Cambridge interesting note, one of the people on the board that interviewed him for the position was Lady Violet Bonham Carter. Really? Grandmother of actress Helena Bonham Carter and... Are you serious? I'm serious and... I, I know it's hard to believe that I'm not just making that up but...
1: And Johnny Depp's grandfather. No, <laughs> no, 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 no,
2: no. And she was a, Winston Churchill's closest family friend. Wow. Yeah. Small world, huh? Small world. And she world. was on the board, and she was also a friend of uh, the family of Donald McLean, but, uh, yeah, interviewed him for the role in the civil service.
1: Is she the one that asked him about did he still favor communism? Or was that probably, I'm guessing, someone else on the board?
2: Yeah, I think there's somebody on the board, and he was like, oh, no, no, I did, but no, not anymore. <laughs> well, no.
1: I've got his actual quote. He yeah. says, well... At Cambridge, I was initially favorable to it, but I am little by little getting disenchanted with it. Now, let me just stop you right there. Mm. I'm about to put you in the civil service and you're a communist and you're saying, well, yeah, but it's kind of fading on me now. I don't know. And that's still good enough to get. In the fucking service. Well, I think it's more believable
2: than if you said, "Oh no, no, I'm totally dead against it." Now I've done a complete backflip in the last three years. I think <laughs> yes, it's more, but, more, more believable you know, to say, "Yeah, you know, I'm kind of, I'm kind of, you know, yeah, drifting away." Yeah. You know, it doesn't I was really young get me hard anymore. But, yeah. but wouldn't
1: it just be safer to go? You know, because I can imagine what the Americans would have done. Look, because there's a one percent chance, we can't take a chance on you. Thank you very much for applying and taking this test and spending a year of your life studying, but. No, thank you. I mean, so again, probably because of his background, probably because of he comes from Cambridge, that's good enough for them, and he's yeah. allowed to enter into the civil service. Yeah. And
2: yeah, they, they were probably relatively hard up, finding good people
1: yeah, to, to, to
2: get to yeah. do this work. I mean, uh, so what are we, 35? The war's not on yet, but still. I mean, right. finding good, smart people is always that's hard. That's important. Absolutely. It's a, it's, no yeah. matter what you're doing, finding, I mean, you know, I had to give up my search and I went with you for a co-host yeah, for these you shows, for but it's, yeah, it's yeah. hard to find smart, hardworking people. Trust me.
1: Yeah. See, and again, we were I mean, talking about this before we, I'm sorry.
2: Yeah. Wait. No, go on. You're going to say something about Markham?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Should I just let that go? <laughs> <laughs> no. Okay. Well, I was going to say it too. Well, you You go ahead. You go
2: ahead and tell <laughs> no, the No, no. You tell the story. It's funny you're coming from okay. you.
1: Well, again, and I'm, I'm going to try to be modest, but that's not really my thing. Um, when Markham says to, to Cameron, hey, you're doing really well. Let me let me come on your show. Let me do something for you. Let me write a forward for your book or whatever. I mean, Cam's <laughs> response is, look, I've already got an older guy who doesn't want to do any work, who I have to carry all the way. Thank you. That position has been filled. And may I say, quite admirably, I've got way. Yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know. Markham never let me play with his balls, and let's be face it, he's a bit older, A bit too old for that. Now,
1: well, the so. first time I was sleeping, the second time I really enjoyed it. But let's let's get past that. In August of nineteen thirty-five, if I may, I hope I'm not yeah. jumping ahead of you.
2: No, that's fine.
1: Um, so so McLean, so McLean gets a, he's you know takes the examination and he's admitted into the foreign office, even though he's getting starting to get wishy washy on communism. Uh, he's in the, he goes into the foreign office and he's assigned to the Western Department of the Foreign Office that deals with Netherlands, Spain, Portugal, Switzerland and the League of Nations. So here's a guy who may may not really be a communist but he's suddenly working for these departments and of course he's getting access to everything that runs through there that he can get his hands on and as we said before you take out your camera at the end of the day click click put it in a box give it to your handler right away he is able to get them very valuable information coming from this important part Of the foreign office.
2: I read that over the next few years, 45 boxes of documents he photographed and sent to Moscow.
1: Yeah, and not only that, but um, he's also given work in the non-intervention committee that's set up to watch the um, the activities of Germany, Italy, and the USSR and their involvement uh, in the Spanish Civil War and what they were doing and who can be trusted and are they fighting for the right side. And again, all that information is getting to Stalin, which is even more important than some of the other stuff, because he's involved in the Spanish Civil War. So he's able to read their letters from day one just from this guy alone so again he's sending them a prodigious amount of uh, documents you know from from the foreign office
2: Mm. and still the the guy that recruited him gets killed among stalin's purges you know you think
1: well goes to holiday he goes to holiday (laughs) in russia and is never seen again we don't know maybe he retired maybe he's Mm. working in a publishing house like the spies yeah
2: you would think that recruiting the most successful spies in all of history yes. would earn you yes. a uh, retirement. The spies, a blow themselves blowjob from got Stalin. I'm sorry, <laughs>
1: I want a blow job
2: from Stalin.
1: So I got the Cambridge oh, Five. You just like the way down. you
2: like the way his mustache just tickles the tip when it goes in. and Hey, out.
1: we all have our preferences, but I'm sorry. I'd be like, not only do I insist that you not <laughs> shoot me, don't judge me. In <laughs> Don't judge me, blow me, Stalin, okay? I got you the Cambridge Five. I'm sorry, please get on with your academic series. But I want a blowjob from
2: Stalin. You oh, oh, should put that on a coffee mug. I want a blowjob from Stalin. Kill uh, me.
1: Kill me. I got you the Cambridge Five. Blow uh, me, Stalin. There it is right there.
2: From Contributions to the success of Soviet <laughs> spying, you get a blowjob from Stalin.
1: He probably got it, but then he got killed, so it (laughs) kind of took the sting away. Stalin had this.
2: Stalin just felt so guilty the next day when he had to do the walk of shame. He had the guy killed. Oh, I just
1: anyway. So he's going to get a new handler. He's got to because the other one's retired permanently.
2: Yeah, retired permanently. Um, So in 1938, he gets promoted by the Brits to a post as third secretary at Her Majesty's embassy in paris or his majesty's probably saying right. as there was a king at the time, at the time. Yeah. yeah
1: and it's yeah and that's a promotion so he goes from the foreign office and it's kind of hard to tell but when you go up and you're the third secretary that is a definite promotion he's in paris and again a lot of diplomatic cables are going through the british embassy and you again clickety click click all these copies of everything are are on their way to moscow
2: Well, yeah, particularly he is here in Paris uh, in the lead up to the war. So all of the negotiations between the British, the French and the Germans, including (laughs) obviously the appeasement stuff, et cetera, et cetera, right up uh, to the war. uh, He is he has access to and He gives all of that to Stalin.
1: And, And I would just want to mention two other things real quick. His his nickname was known as Fancy Pants McLean. McLean because he obviously was uh, from a certain background and he made friends with all the higher ups one if you can do that good for you because you get to hang out with them and go to their country homes but again he's establishing contacts they start talking they treat him like one of their own he learns even more things than what just comes in the the uh the messages and again all that is going back to uh back to moscow if i could just mention the whole um the whole uh finland war when the soviet union attacks finland so The war has started, and Stalin is going to take advantage of the fact that Germany is preoccupied, and he's going to invade Finland. Now this is November of 1939, and even though the Soviet Russians have three times the soldiers that Finland does, they have 30 times the number of planes that Finland does, and they have 100 times more tanks than Finland does, Finland is able to kick ass for a couple of weeks and embarrass Soviet Russia because, again, of Stalin's purges. All of the the officers didn't have the experience. Uh, they didn't know how to lead their men. And so it's just a complete chaos. So um, McLean is telling Moscow that Churchill, excuse me, not Churchill, that London is seriously considering getting involved in this and helping Finland fight. So you've got to hurry up and end the war or suddenly you might be facing two countries instead of one. So as we know, Stalin kind of takes a break of the war, really brings a ton of troops. And again, it's not quality, it's just quantity. And they just pretty much overrun Finland and they're able to get uh, all the territory they wanted. And the war is over within March 1940. But again, Stalin knew that London was seriously considering finding a way to get involved in this war to stop Stalin. So he had to hurry up and finish it off, which he does. But he wouldn't have known that. It might have dragged out. And it could have been an entirely different picture that we're looking at if the British had got involved in Finland.
2: Yeah. So in 1939, he meets a young American woman. Oh, I know how that goes. Her name was Melinda Marling. And uh, they were married the following year.
1: It didn't he, help that her daddy was rich.
2: Yes. She
1: was a Chicago oil executive. The parents were divorcing. She moved in with her mom in Paris. She's getting ready to go to school. Now, I'm not going to give anything away, but when McLean meets her, instead of just doing poetry and roses and, oh, you're so pretty and I can't imagine life without you, he's got a different tact to uh, try to, to get this girl's attention when he wishes to press his suit.
2: Well, speaking as another uh, person who met a young American woman in France, yeah. right, he, he used the same line I did. Uh, he said, Honey, I'm a podcaster. And she said... And then Ooh. he played her a Beatles song. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, he told her he was a spy early on.
1: Hey, baby, guess
2: what? <laughs> He's like Archer. Have you ever watched Archer? That's
1: right. Yeah, I love <laughs> Archer. That's how i modeled model my life after.
2: I'm a spy! Um... <laughs> And Lana! she, she, <laughs> she, oh, she gotta go get a clip for that. She was, uh she was all for it.
1: Yes, she said, "I Ooh. think that's great. Not only will I help you, I'll marry you, and because I've got a lot of American connections in the right circles, I can help gather information." So he's got not only does he have a wife who's rich, which is always nice. He now has a partner. That's true love. I don't care what you say.
2: For, uh, Lana.
1: Lana. Lana. Lana! What? <laughs>
2: <laughs> Love that show. Oh, me too. But it's
1: effective. It's He's loud, but he's effective.
2: Actually, the last couple of seasons have been lame. It was great for the yeah. first couple of seasons, then it kind of, they lost it. Yeah. yeah. <clears So throat> Jump the shark. Um, yeah, so it works, man. She's into it. She's like, ooh, do it to me like a spy, baby. <laughs>
1: And it works because she gets Pragers pretty much right away. So, yeah.
2: Now, in 1940, as the Germans are approaching Paris, they escape back to London, McLean mm-hmm. and his wife, Melinda, that is, where he is assigned by the British Foreign Office to work on economic warfare matters.
1: <laughs> pretty important job. Now, again, he's still spying for everybody. So he's working on economic warfare, civil air matters, military base negotiations, natural resources. Um, did and I he he sent them information. I don't know how to pronounce the word about the material tung tungsten. Did you read about that?
2: Yeah, tungsten. I don't know how to say it. Yes, I don't know how to say it. Tungsten. Okay. Yes. Yeah.
1: So it turns out that this, you know, obviously not now because it's 2016, but back then this was a pretty big deal. Its alloys were important for building bulb filaments, x-ray tubes, and helping uh, create better... Penetrating projectile mis- uh, missile shells, excuse me. So this is stuff he's gathering, and he's sending it all to Moscow. So they're not missing a beat. He's actually in some ways been promoted. He's at the heart of the intelligence community in London. And they're getting even better information from him at this point. All because Germany invaded France.
2: Mmm. Yeah. Now, in London, the McLeans, McLeans, I don't, know, I don't know how to say that, McLean, yeah, it just makes yeah. me think of Die Hard, um, became part of the social set that circulated at places like Cafe Royal, the Gargoyle Club, and the country houses of the establishment on weekends. Now, the Gargoyle Club plays a big role. Most of these spies were members of the Gargoyle Club. It was a private club in uh, Soho in London, founded in either 1925 or 1928, depending on which source you believe, by David Tennant. Before he became Doctor Who, uh, he uh, that was what he did. He founded uh, that. Nice. Yeah. I mean, he, well, he's probably as Doctor Who. He went back in yeah. time, uh, founded... The Gargoyle Club. Right. Possible. Uh, there was a there was a photo of the tart painting of the Tardis up <laughs> on the wall. Um, <clears throat> now, nah, seriously, this was a, this was a swanky affair. Um, some of the interiors were painted by Henri Matisse, who was also a member of the club. Right. Other members of the club included Fred Astaire, Francis Bacon. Tallulah Bankhead Noel Coward Lucian Freud Graham Green uh, Dylan Thomas Philip Toynbee so it was a who's who Toynbee, of sort Toynbee. of. Uh, <laughs> sorry I couldn't resist Toynbee Toynbee
1: Toynbee I'm sorry I, I had to I had to do that
2: wow Toynbee. yeah wow what is your the- fucking problem
1: Grand Green is he the guy who did the books Wind in the Willows
2: <laughs> no. I think he no 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 graham, Are you graham sure? uh the writer? well i'm not sure about it. he's a spy novelist did he do wind in the willows as well no he didn't know, do wind in the willows I, no i no, have
1: no. A, i have that anyway all right i apologize
2: wind in the willows uh was written by kenneth graham
1: Kenneth Graham. I'm sorry, I got my grams mixed up, my graham crackers mixed up. Yeah. I apologize. Like your George... Let's
2: just forget... Like your George Keenan's. Right.
1: <laughs> Let's just forget the last 30 seconds ever happened.
2: Well, I'm actually, I'm going to talk about Graham Greene later on, because he was yes. actually a friend of Philby's, and even when Philby was living in Moscow, Graham Greene would go to visit him. They were in the Secret Service together. And uh, at MI six or one of these Foreign Office, one of these places, and but he uh, he wrote, uh, you know, the Third Man, the Power and the Glory, Our Man in Havana, um, a lot of sort of the most famous uh, 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 spy novels um, uh, written in the sort of late twentieth century. Very, very very not famous. Not Wind movie. in the Willows. But, yeah, that not clear. that. He always wished he'd written that. He uh, used to Hell say yeah, it was awesome. Toad of Toad Hall. if, if Toad, only... always a Toad. Yeah, he wrote The Quiet American and The Third Man that, you know, Orson Welles uh, right. starred in the film version. But he always said, if only I'd written Toad of Toad Hall, my life would be complete.
1: Well, I'm glad we had the Cold War just so we could write novels and get rich. I'm glad we could do that for him so he could have a career. Yeah. You're welcome.
2: Yeah, yeah. We made his reputation. So getting back to the McLeans, they're part of high society. And then in 1944, McLean is promoted yeah. again and given the assignment as second secretary at the British Embassy in Washington.
1: So he goes from third secretary in Paris to second secretary in Washington. Obviously promotion, obviously going to have access to even more stuff. And guess where a copy of all that is going to.
2: Yeah. Now, he serves in Washington for four years, 44 to 48. Eventually is promoted to first secretary of the British embassy in Washington. So... His career is doing pretty well, and no one suspects at all at this juncture that he is a spy for the Soviets.
1: So, so let me ask this: so, from what what you read, so he's not out there crazy doing crazy things like um,
2: Burgess. Uh, Burgess or no, whatever. Yeah.
1: But he just he just seems to be a middle of the road plotter working. He's got his wife, you know, whatever things. Couple seems,
2: of kids. He seems to be, so he's what? Couple of kids. His wife's yeah. sort of American aristocracy.
1: Oh, and their first, I think it's their first child dies at some point. So they probably got this, and I'm not trying to be cruel, but they, you get the sympathy vote for that. So no, so he's like the last guy that you would look at. But because he's now the first secretary in the British embassy, he has access to things like uh, the combined policy between the United States and Britain of uh, atomic energy, energy manner. Shit, I can't talk. Atomic energy energy matters. So again, he's not giving the Soviet Russians technical data because, to be honest with you, he doesn't have that information. But rest assured, uh, they are getting that information from other people, which I'm sure we'll cover at some point. But he's able to give them information about the combined U.S.- UK, and Canada atomic programs. So they have an idea of what America can do, how, they, how they're getting it done, and, and, and from that they can figure out how many bombs the United nuclear bombs the United States can build. So he's giving them top-quality stuff, and from what I can tell, nobody's on to him.
2: Yeah, including the amount of plutonium that the U.S. had managed to get access to for developing the bombs... Uh, He's feeding a hell of a lot of information about the Manhattan Project straight through. And while they're there, the McLeans also become part of the social set in Washington, which included Catherine Graham, not related. Didn't she write Wind in the Willows, Catherine Graham? I think she did. Yeah. I think so. She helped out. Her husband at the time was the editor of the Washington Post, which her father had owned since 1933. And of course, when her husband dies, she ends up famously as the editor of the Washington Post for for decades, right right up until, I think, uh, what's his, what's his face bought it? Jeff Bezos. Um, So, yeah, so that's, that's who they're mixing with. Like the, the, the elite, the political and corporate elite of the United States, Washington in particular, they are hanging out with in social circles. So, just like Burgess uh, and Philby in London, they are... Mr. Toad. (laughs) Sorry, sorry, sorry. Yeah, they have access not just to official documents, but, you know, things that people tell you at cocktail parties, playing croquet on the lawn over cucumber sandwiches, (laughs) all of that kind of shit. In the private clubs, the whole deal. Yeah,
1: yeah, right. and council meetings. They're able to make copies of minutes from council meetings on the atomic... uh, the program that's going on. So the Russians are getting just a shit ton, which is a real amount of material um, coming to them on a regular basis. And no one seems to have any idea what's going on. And again, just want to say it, these guys are doing this because of their ideals, because of their beliefs, not for a whole bunch of cash, which is going to happen a ton of times during the Cold War when Americans are caught. It was p- pretty much for the cash because we're Americans.
2: Yeah, and if you think about them as traitors or betraying their country, you've got sort of an old fashioned, I guess, patriotic view, which was sort of, it's sort of been uh, invented a lot during times of war or or escalated, this idea of patriotism. But as we'll see, these guys, they believed that the. British Empire was in decline and that the Soviet Empire was rising and it was socialism and it was the future of the world. They were making bets on what they thought was going to be the best direction for the planet, for the species, not only in defeating the fascists, but long term, they believed that socialism was a better path forwards than... Capitalism, and uh, so they weren't thinking, they, they didn't see themselves as traitors. They saw themselves as people fighting for a new world, building a new and better world. Right. Anyway, and, we'll get into that. And the other later.
1: part, of- I'm sorry. There no, you I apologize. Right. And the other part of that, as we're going to see, this is going to happen time and time Drink. again uh, throughout the Cold War. <laughs> What? Joe <laughs> oh, yeah, The Ray um, Apology
2: Drinking Game, everyone drink a shot.
1: It's back it's back everybody, and I'm I apologize for that too. Uh, a lot of these people really thought they were preventing war. Let me give the Soviet Union information to keep up with the Americans or to know what the Americans are going on or whatever. So they a lot of them really did think they were stopping a war that would pretty much destroy the world as we know it. So again, they had their own ideas whether they were right or wrong, if not the point. They had their own hardcore beliefs For what they were doing,
2: yeah. So in 1948, Don McLean is appointed to the role of the head of chancery at the British Embassy in Cairo. Do you know what a chancery? Another promotion. Do you know what a chancery is, Ray? Uh,
1: That that's not their embassy. What is it? I don't know.
2: Yeah, chancery is a type of building that houses a diplomatic mission or an embassy. Gotcha. I I had to look it up. I didn't know what it was. Um, so that pretty much makes him the key official in the Cairo embassy with responsibility for coordinating the U.S.-U.K. war planning and relationships with the Egyptian government. Secondary to the ambassador in, in that respect. Right. But he's the, he's, the, yeah. he's the main guy now in Cairo. Our man in Cairo. It's,
1: <laughs> That's right. And the reason this might not sound important, oh I'm in Egypt, big deal or whatever, but there were um air bases there where the United States Air Force, uh, with atomic bombs could reach the Soviet Union. So it was almost like we're this is as close as we can get, we can attack him from here. So he is there, he's in this very important Anglo American um joint uh planning stages for war in case war ever comes. And the point is he's able to get all this information because he is only second to the ambassador and he is sending everything to Moscow. So this is a real threat to Moscow, a real military threat to Moscow. And they're able to read the cards, other enemies at this location. Again, just absolutely staggering.
2: Yeah. So at this point... uh. The, the, the whole double life thing uh, seems to be taking its toll on McLean. He starts drinking a lot, getting into fights, talking about his life as a spy. Uh, Lana! Well, well,
1: I'm a fucking spy and there's not shit you're going to do about it. Give me another drink.
2: Or was it all staged? Yeah, well, there's a suggestion that it might have uh, been staged as well. We don't really know. Uh, But if it
1: was staged, why would it have been staged?
2: Well, partially to get him out or to get him back to London for certain reasons. But the Americans were getting close. Um, We know around about this time. So, there's one episode where he apparently gets drunk and uh, wrecks an an American embassy staffer's apartment. He goes a bit rock and roll. Throws a TV through a window, pisses on the carpet. And uh, his wife tells the ambassador that Donald is ill and they need to go back to London to see a London doctor because they don't trust the Egyptian doctors, Ray.
1: And what's the other part of that? He might be a a little upset because I've been banging an Egyptian aristocrat for the (laughs) the last couple of months. So he's drinking, fighting. She's banging other people, not currently her husband. And so, yeah, so he's got to go back and either take a break or get some help. Was it real? Was it staged? We don't know. But either way, it's convenient, as you said, because the Americans are closing in on him.
2: Yeah, it may have been a ploy to get them out of America with some sort of cover because of the Verona. Out of Cairo. Sorry, out of Cairo. Yeah, they're out of America, yeah. but they out of Cairo. Because of the Verona project.
1: Yeah, that was now- some pretty neat shit.
2: Yeah, the Verona, uh, Verona or Venona, I've got... Venona. Venona, Venona. yeah. It it should be Verona Verona, because
1: that's easier to say, but it's Venona.
2: Yeah. I actually heard that um, the original name for it was um, the My Sharona Project. The Venona Project started in 1943, ran to 1980. It was a counterintelligence program initiated by the U.S. Army's Signal Intelligence Service, the SIS, which later became the National Security Agency, the NSA, that is listening to this right now uh, in real time. Hello, guys. Hi, guys and girls. Hope you're enjoying the show. It kept. It kept getting changed to the sissy
1: from SIS, so they had yeah, they to, change, had to it change it to another that. acronym so yeah. it could be made fun of. Yeah. that's 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 what I heard.
2: Yeah. Um, now the purpose of the My Sharona project was uh, to get the touch of the younger kind. Very important, right? Always enjoy yep. the touch of the younger kind, as I know you do in Virginia, Ray. And. No, it- the decryption of messages transmitted by the intelligence AG, agencies of the Soviet Union, the NKVD, the KGB, which was in looking after foreign intelligence, and the GRU, military intelligence, this is later on, Cold War era. Wow. Um, but They wanted to do the decryption of messages while they were being touched by the younger kind. That was the well, innovative yeah. thing with the My Sharona Project. Uh, in fact, why got shut down and changed to the Venona Project because they were like, what the fuck are you doing? She's 12. What are you doing? That's- well, it's okay if she's your cousin, but that's the yeah. American version. Yeah. I don't want to get into that. <laughs>
1: no.
2: It ran for 37 years, and apparently during that time they decrypted and translated approximately 3,000 messages from Russian to English, and uh, some of those... Uh, what gave the Cambridge Five away. They started to find messages about the Manhattan Project, uh, and that's what got them close to McLean and then Mm. Burgess. Um, Now, it remained secret, the Venona Project, for 15 years after it ended. So it ended in 1980, uh, and people only found out about it. It was only sort of made public in 1995, uh, some of the Soviet messages were declassified. Then, it was initiated in 1943 under the orders of the Deputy Chief of Military Intelligence, Carter W. Clark. Do you read much about this guy? Um, no. Is he from World War? Is he a general? Of World War Two? Am I getting my
1: clerks mixed up?
2: Um, like I
1: did my writers.
2: Yeah, I don't know. He might have been. Okay. I, I don't know what he did before he started this, but. I know that he uh, apparently distrusted Stalin, even, you know, this is 1943 when they're, um, you know, they're, they're fucking allies with them, Yeah, the big three. But Clark, just like Stalin feared the Brits would conclude a separate peace with the Third Reich, Clark suspected Stalin would do that. Mm-hmm. Um, so he pulled together this... Uh, Team to try and intercept and decrypt uh, classified Soviet documents using codebreakers from Cis, uh, commonly called Arlington Hall, and uh, it was so secret his his whole operation of intercepting and declassifying these uh, you, know, you know diplomatic communications. That mm-hmm. even Roosevelt and later Truman didn't know it existed.
1: Damn. And you can't lie about something if you don't
2: know it exists. So it makes me wonder, what's being kept secret from presidents today? Shit-ton. That's a real thing, too, you told me earlier, shit-ton.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, I'm sure that, I, I mean, because if I was elected president, the first thing I'd walk in, okay, first of all, I want to know who killed Kennedy, where's his brain, and then aliens, and then tell me all the other shit that you guys are doing without my permission or without someone's permission, and you're not telling us, and we're paying for. I would clean house, but that that's just me. That's just
2: me. <laughs> or, do you think the first thing that happens when you're president is they say, uh, there are things you don't need to know, Mr. President, let's just... Uh, here's the you know there's a whole bunch of stuff in the you don't need to know this file uh because yeah then you can't you, you know you can't be accused yeah. you have plausible deniability
1: yeah it's bullshit but as a married man i'm used to that concept so i could probably go along with it just fine
0: i have this feeling man because you know there's a the handful of people actually run everything that's true it's provable it's not a fuck i'm not a conspiracy nut it's provable handful, very small elite running on these corporations, which include the mainstream media. I have this feeling, who's ever elected president, no matter what your promises you promise on the campaign trail, blah, 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 when you win, you go into this smoky room with the 12 industrialist, capitalist scum fucks who got you in there, and you're in this smoky room, and this little uh, uh, film uh, screen comes down, and a big guy in a cigar, roll the film. And it's a shot of a Kennedy assassination from an angle you've never seen before. It looks suspiciously off uh, the grassy knoll. And then the film, the screen goes up and the lights come up and they go to the new president. Any questions?
2: Oh, it cut off. He finishes finishes off by saying, what's my agenda? Any questions? What's my agenda? (laughs) Yeah. Uh,
1: Now, I've read books on both sides. I've read, I don't know how many books on that because I was into that for a while. I still have no fucking idea what happened with Kennedy. You You got any ideas about Kennedy?
2: My favorite theory is that The hit was done by uh, a combination of the CIA and the mob working together, probably, you know, rogue elements of the CIA that were at that time closely associated with the mob. Um, I think uh, J. Edgar Hoover knew it was going to happen beforehand. I think he told LBJ beforehand I think it went down in Dallas, Texas for a reason. Uh, yeah. Mm. I, I think it was uh, CIA and and the mob. And it was it was payback for the fact that the mob uh, had helped get Kennedy elected using right. their influence with the Teamsters. Um, partially because he promised he would get Castro out of Cuba so the mob could get their... Casinos back, and mm. uh, after the Bay of Pigs fiasco, when Kennedy pulled all of the support out of support. a Cuba invasion—well, air support uh, during and then afterwards—he's like, "Fuck that! We're not doing that. We're not. Right. We're not invading Cuba." Um, that they were that, and he was also trying to. He was so pissy about how badly planned it was that he was going to curb the CIA's activities, um, That and, and he was also having troubles with, you know, he and his brother hated Hoover, they hated LBJ, right. uh, that it was decided that he had to be taken out. Yeah. But, but as you say, there is, there is scant evidence to support anything. Uh, it's very, very difficult to put your hand on your heart and say, this is absolutely what happened.
1: Well, It's just a shame that it's so many decades have gone by. You think somebody would let something slip or whatever. You just get the sense that we'll never know. There won't be a a diary or a confession or a, or whatever left behind. You, you, yeah. you would imagine it would have happened by now, but that's, that's whatever. That's the way it goes.
2: Well, a couple of mobsters said a few things before they died. I think Joseph, Joseph Bonanno and guys like that, but... Yeah, they're not taken seriously, and uh, the 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 string. We'll get to this when we get to the Kennedy assassination in twenty years, I'm sure. But uh, it uh, there all the the people who said that they knew something about it just after the assassination, who then ended up dead uh, in in a very small time frame, is kind of astounding. There's there's a long, long list of people who. Said that they had information and wound up dead days later. Um, so mm. yeah. Anywho, uh, yeah. let's not get down into that rabbit hole. So this was kept secret. The the secret intelligence service code breaking. Anyway, um, the McLeans go back to London. After a few months of recovery, McLean is promoted to the head of the American department okay. in the foreign. Stop of-
1: right there. So he he, he is, has a mental breakdown he rests they suspect him or at least the Americans do something's going on and he gets a promotion yeah well, again just gotta call <laughs> attention to that I just gotta draw someone's attention to that
2: well yeah like uh, the, the people you want to promote are the mentally unstable uh suspected spies they they've, they've shown that they have what it takes. They're prepared to put it in the hard yards. I don't well, know. At,
1: at least if he could be a double spy, you know, you, yeah, you're, you're giving them our shit, but give us some of theirs or whatever. But, he, you know, he wouldn't have known anything. But, again, yeah. it just staggers. me. And, of course, this is hindsight. But, again, he is promoted to the Department of the Foreign Office and, and the American Department of the Foreign Office. So, mm. he, again, he's going to have have access to some very important documents, which is all going to get passed on.
2: mm. Well, in 1951 the Venona project finally manages to decrypt some cables going way back to 1944
1: and 1945.
2: Wow uh, that had been sent from uh, to the Soviets.
1: Slow work. yeah
2: yeah, yeah. well they had to yeah. they, and apparently it only happened. so uh, I, I don't have this in detail in my notes. But there was one of these encryption machines that the Soviet agents had that, that encrypted their communications. And mm-hmm. you were only supposed to use uh, a setup for it once. You weren't supposed right. to use it more than once to make it harder to you know, basically, you were changing the encryption key with every message. Right. Apparently, some yeah. someone fucked up, got lazy, used got the same lazy, encryption man. key two or three times, and that you know massively increases the data set that the code breakers have to work from to look for pattern recognition, and uh, that's what brought them down. Just laziness on behalf of some you know Damn. some Soviet agent somewhere.
1: I have to bring this up, but you saw the wire, right?
2: 5 times I've watched The Wire. Okay,
1: the scene where the the young black man is told you go to different stores throughout this huge area and only buy one or two cell phones, you know, what do you call them, burners or whatever? Yeah. You only buy that. And he's taking his girlfriend with him and she's getting bored. She said, why don't you just buy all the phones here? He goes, no, no, my boss told me just buy one or two and go, but we're driving all day. But that's my job. She goes, look, tell you what, you buy all the stores and you buy all the phones in this one store and I'll blow you real quick and then we can go home. He says, okay, and that's (laughs) that's how they're able to catch, to to, uh, wiretap his phone because they keep using the, the phones from this one location again. You can't be lazy whether you're a drug dealer or a spy. you got to stick to the plans, people. Blowjob or no. I'm sorry. Yeah. Lesson learned. Lesson learned.
2: So, (laughs) (laughs) a bit of life advice from Ray.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Forget what I said about the Stalin blowjob. Stick to the basics, people, if you don't want to get caught.
2: One of the messages that they decrypt mentioned that an agent referred to as Homer... Mm-hmm. was heading to New York where his wife was living with her mother awaiting the birth of a child ah uh, that was enough to nail him i guess
1: uh. Uh.
2: Yes, it I
1: was, was a, somebody would pay me to go, no you know and get paid twenty million dollars an episode, uh twenty thousand dollars an episode, but anyway
2: now uh this led them to suspect McLean because his wife uh had was living had gone to live with their her mother in New York when she was awaiting the birth of her child, so put him on a list. Uh, one of several suspects. He uh, wasn't the only one, but he was one of a small handful. But fortunately, Kim Philby was also in Washington at the time, serving <laughs> right. as Britain's liaison with the CIA, FBI, and NSA, or SIS. He saw <laughs> the Venona material... Saw, why did the
1: Americans share that one particular we think there's a British spy, why would you give that to the British? But again, that's that's me, Mr. Hindsight. Well whatever.
2: You know, it's not as bad as the Brits finding out from a Russian defector that there was a spy amongst their ranks and sending Philby to go and interview him to find out who <laughs> it was. Right.
1: <laughs> not their proudest moment. Anyway, the I'm Americans positive, were like continue. Philby. Hey, Philby! <laughs> apparently one of you Brits is a spy for the Don't commies. tell anybody. Yeah. Any idea who it might be? No, I, I can't really say that idea. Yeah, and like, <laughs> there couldn't be more than one spy dumbasses. Yeah,
2: yeah. So Philby sees this mention of Homer, recognizes that it's McLean, mm. and uh, he goes to see Burgess And he and Burgess decide that Burgess will travel to London to warn McLean in person because they can't Mm -hmm. risk uh, telephones at this stage, particularly if McLean is under suspicion. Right. Um, But also because Burgess is uh, going to be associated with this as well, apparently, Uh, so they need to get the hell out of Dodge. I think... Uh, Burgess and McLean were connected Did they share No they didn't share an apartment McLean was married I don't know I can't remember what their connection was At this point Have you got that in your notes
1: Um, No it was uh, It was Burgess Who lived together They were really Oh god Burgess and McLean were really tight In Cambridge
2: Yeah No Burgess was living with Kim Philby Oh okay In Washington um apparently he wasn't under direct suspicion at the time as he himself said in that audio clip we played at the last show but um yeah he he decided to get out of dodge anyway not really sure why there are some sources that suggest that he maybe he thought he'd be able to return to England afterwards because Mm. he was just going to get McLean there safely and would be able to come back. Um, Maybe they didn't trust McLean because he'd had these breakdowns and they thought he might, uh, well, not defect, but confess um, rather than leave his family behind. Um, So, yeah, Burgess went with him anyway, but then obviously couldn't come back.
1: Right. Yeah, so so, uh, McLean... McLean, whatever. He jumps on a train from the foreign office. Uh, He he goes to his house in Kent where his wife is waiting for him. It just happens to be his 38th birthday, May 25th, uh, 1951. Burgess comes there. They celebrate his birthday as you do, but they pretty much know that they have to leave the country. And again... Here's the part that Ray, the American or family man, doesn't get. Uh, McLean kisses his wife and children goodbye. I guess Melinda knows what's going to go on. And as you said in the other, the other episode, they jump into Burgess's car. They head to a train station. They take they go to to Southampton, get on a ferry, go to France, and disappear because obviously they've been taught spycraft. But he left his family behind. I don't know if he was thinking. It's too much of a risk or maybe I can get you later or whatever. But the point is, and you, you said this on the other show, it's not like they get over there and they and they get into the Soviet Union and they go, ah, we made it, you can't touch this. They literally disappear from the face of the earth and no one, as far as what the people in London have any idea of where they're at for the next five years.
2: Yeah, it was five years <laughs> just, before Khrushchev, of course, Stalin died in uh, 53, so a 53, couple of years later. Yeah. Five yeah. years before Khrushchev, who, who's premier of the Soviet Union after Stalin, even admits that they are in the Soviet Union. But you've got to think, if McLean is on a short list of possible suspects and then he disappears, yeah, it's a tip-off. It's a
1: pretty, yeah. pretty, 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 big, big tip-off. Tip tip off.
2: Yeah. But his wife, who he left behind, Melinda, uh, played it uh, so well, so... Uh, ah. she rings his office the following Monday and says, uh, have you seen my husband? <laughs> and they're like, uh, what? And she goes, oh, I, just, I haven't seen him for uh, all day. I thought he might be at work. Uh, do you know where he is? And they're like, no. And she's like, oh, well, he's ah. just, hes maybe he's just gone fishing. I don't know.
1: Or midlife so- crisis, got a convertible, a young girl. So no. she, she
2: got on the front foot and feigned total ignorance, which means MI5 put off interviewing her for nearly a week. The house wasn't searched. Uh, yeah. So she was able to clean up any evidence of his plans, where he'd gone. And she, she was also heavily pregnant at the time. She gave yes. birth to their third child a daughter three weeks after he left. Imagine leaving your wife who is no. due to give yeah. birth.
1: That's bullshit.
2: Well, come you on. Would that or life in prison or execution? Or you execution? Try to take
1: them with you. I don't know, but that's just me the family
2: man. That's just me. Well, I yeah, I mean she did she and her children did join him in Moscow a year later. They probably she couldn't travel. She was due to give birth in 3 weeks, man. You can't true. you can't true. travel under those circumstances. Yeah. So I I think that was the uh, defining, uh, would have been the defining issue, is how close she was to give birth. Right. But um, two months before his defection in the United States, Julius and Ethel Rosenberg had been executed for spying.
1: Mm. Damn.
2: So So that was a warning. Yeah, and we will talk about the Rosenbergs, I guess, at some stage. Um, <clears throat> so they had been executed. so you know, they were fairly well aware of what the risks were and her risk is just being a collaborator to with her husband. Yeah. So she was at risk as well. Anyway, uh, so in 51, Burgess and McLean go to Moscow in 52 she follows. Uh, Mm -hmm. Kim Philby ends up there a decade or so later, and then he and Melinda McLean become lovers in 1964 during a ski
1: trip. A non-sexual Vegas reference. I don't think we've done that yet. I didn't know that was possible. Since we got back. Yeah. Yeah, no, um, you and I, we weren't completely bowled over, I think, by the Beatles show. Uh, but the music, it was just ass kicking. It was just nice to hear all that. Some of it was pretty freaking awesome, or whatever. But uh, it was just nice to hear the Beatles being blasted and a whole bunch of people having fun. So when we went to the show, it was absolutely, uh, you know, had a great time.
2: Yeah, it was great. Yeah. Um. <clears throat> So uh, yeah, she and Philby uh, get it on while Eleanor Philby is on a visit to the United States. McLean exactly. found out. Don McLean. Uh, he and Philby obviously had a major falling out over that. Um, you know, you got to have code among spies. That's what I always say. Yeah,
1: I mean, I hit on Chrissy in Vegas, but I asked your permission first. You went. Sure. You ain't got a chance, but you go right ahead, but a yeah. boat.
2: Yeah. So I appreciate that, Cam. I appreciate it. Look, you know, me casa, su casa, man. That's what I always say. <laughs> <laughs> and by casa, I mean my wife's pussy. Like, you know, what's <laughs> yours is mine. It's it's understood. We're brothers. You got to share everything.
1: We do. And I tried and shot mm. down, but that's another point. I appreciate mm. the opportunity. She said, that's is,
2: all is it in yet? And uh, gave up.
1: Yeah, and I'm over here smoking a cigarette. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: Eleanor Philby found out about the affair uh, after she returned and she left Moscow for good. Yeah. Melinda McLean moved in with Kim Philby in 1966, but three years later she left him and returned to uh, her husband. No, you don't take her back. I'm sorry. crossed the line. Stayed with him until 1979 when she left Moscow mm-hmm. for good. She returned to the United States to be with her mother and sisters. Forget
1: General Hospital. They should do a soap on just this time in their lives. Oh, my God. This is incredible.
2: But she was so she was married to a guy who was a British spy who spied on the Americans and the Brits during World mm-hmm. War Two and the Cold War. And she just gets to go back to the United States. Um, that sounds bullshit. Yeah. She died in New York in 2010 without saying a single word ever to the media. Wow, 2010. All three of the McLean children, who uh, I know are big fans and are listening, they uh, married Russians, but But, uh, left Moscow to live in London and the US. Uh, Don McLean himself died in 1983 at the age of 69 uh, he had had pneumonia the year before, but uh, mm. it would be reported to have died uh, in 83. Yeah. And that is the story of Donald MacLean.
1: Except for I do want to say he did get to end his life... Uh, he had an idea when he was back in Cambridge to teach english in the in the in Russia and the Soviet Union. He did get a chance to do that. He uh became a specialist for the Russians on economic policy of the West British foreign affairs. He also taught English, which is something he wanted to originally do before this entire thing got started and he got drafted, if you will uh to be a spy so so he's able to at least fulfill that and he does. Uh, he is awarded the Order of the Red Banner of Labor uh, by the Soviet Union. So, again, I'm not saying good or bad, but that's what these people's lives were like. And they did—they sent an incredible amount of information uh, from the West to the Soviet Union, who had an idea of what we were doing the entire time through World War II and beyond.
2: So, why did they become spies?
1: Um, I don't know, we've given a couple ideas, but I I think it started out um, the influence in Cambridge. A lot of the professors, not a lot, some of the professors went to to Moscow, came back and they shared their experiences. Uh, A lot of these young men were either encouraged or stumbled upon Marxism. They read a lot of Marxism. A lot of them were Marxist or socialist at first, but not communists. They certainly weren't Stalinists. Um, But I think just it, it gradually just... Went that way, but who knows? I mean, I I really think that for them it was an idea. It was a better way. They were trying to do their part to make the world a better place. That's, uh, who knows how accurate that is, but that's the best answer I can give you.
2: Well, I think they were products of their generation. It's important uh, for younger listeners, I think in particular, to remember that socialism and communism were actually very uh, trendy, In the West, in the 20s, 30s, uh, and at various stages of the 40s. Um, You know, we've talked in previous episodes about the number of people that were members of the Communist Party in the USA, in Australia, in the UK. Um, It was something that was uh, perceived as a threat by the elite in the West, as we've talked about in earlier episodes, in large part because the success of socialism in Western countries would have threatened the hold on wealth and power that the elite had and were able to, well, wanted to maintain under a, a right. capitalist form of democracy.
1: And you can't blame them for that. That's human nature.
2: Yeah, but there, were, there was a lot of very intelligent, well-educated, well-read uh, members of the uh elite circles, if you like, uh, around the West in the 20s and 30s who were advocates of socialism and communism purely because they believed that the the theory behind it would lead to a better world, a fairer, Mm -hmm. more just global society that wasn't split between the haves and the have-nots, where that didn't have uh, segregation or, or slavery, where men and women of all color, of all social and economic backgrounds, had equal opportunity, had equal standards of living, were were looked after, where the the dispersion of the wealth of the land. Was uh, divided up more fairly and and judiciously amongst the people, um, where everyone had healthcare and education and enough income to live comfortably. Um, opportunity, yeah. yeah. So, a lot of very very intelligent, well educated people believed Who in cares? that vision yeah. then, as many of us do now. Many of us mm-hmm. still believe that that is where we need to get to as a civilization. We need to, as quickly as possible, get to a point where we don't have the 1% that are billionaires and uh, and, and the lower 40% of the population struggling to make ends meet. That that is wrong. That is unjust. That is... Um, uh, cool. Disgraceful, cruel. Yeah, right. it, it, yeah. It, it's that is not how things should be. That there is more uh, wealth on this planet than we would need to provide everybody with a basic income, a basic standard of uh, health of of comfort, of uh, their, their 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 primary needs in the um, uh, hierarchy. Who's fucking hierarchy, Maslow? Uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. That that we can do that if we try and if we engineer a system to do that. And of course, in the twenties and the thirties, a lot of uh, a lot of these guys believed that the Soviets were pioneering that. Sure, it wasn't perfect, but they were yeah. trying to do it. They were the biggest, the best uh, attempt at figuring out how to make socialism work.
1: And and for those of you who are listening to this right now, going fuck you guys. And I'm a capitalist or whatever you're saying. If that's true, then go read about what Teddy Roosevelt did when he was president. Of the trust busting, the conditions the uh, poor, the working class had to put up with that the one percent were trying to squeeze them even more to get them to make more money out of them. So you need a certain amount of rules, a certain amount of regulation, a fair treatment, if you will. But Uh, Yeah, you can say whatever you want about capitalism, but it certainly has to be watched, maintained and regulated to some degree because human nature will take us back to where little children are working in factories and losing hands and fingers and working incredibly long hours. So we're just trying to find a balance to make it more fair for everybody. That doesn't make anybody evil or or bad communist or whatever. Just trying to look out for a, a larger segment of society than the one percenters are.
2: And keep in mind that in in this era, the twenties and thirties, again, they would just come out of World War One, that was uh, fought primarily between capitalist countries, uh, and and Vermont,
1: yeah, or a czar and a, and, a, and a and a czar and. Um- And Kaiser, yeah, so it's still the 1% or it's still the capitalists, whether it's a crown on their head or a big bank account. It's the few controlling the many. Why should we all die for the few for them so they can have more when they already have more? And that's what a lot of them were thinking after the war.
2: And then they had the Great Depression kicked in in the the late 20s and the 30s. There was this belief that was fairly um, uh, uh, common with anyone who mattered in intellectual circles, that liberal individualism was finished, that we needed to build mm. a better world. And they were convinced that the Soviet system was where the future lay. The um, Capitalism had been discredited during the Great Depression, and they believed that a planned society, a planned economy, was where the future was going to be. In Philby's introduction to his autobiography that he published in 1968, it's called My Silent War, and it's a fascinating read. I highly recommend it. He says, How, where, and when I became a member of the Soviet Intelligence Service is a matter for myself and my comrades. I will only say that when the proposition was made to me, I did not hesitate. One does not look twice at an offer of enrollment in an elite force. So there's nothing in there, though, that suggests there was some sort of ideological conviction. I mean, This is the other way of looking at their actions, that it wasn't about ideology or belief in uh, communism. It was they did believe that the Soviet state was going to dominate global affairs and... And they were given an opportunity, sort of at the ground level, to get in and be part of the elite of the world's upcoming dominant power. They could move from being a member of the British elite, which was in decline, to being part of the Soviet elite, which was on the ascendancy.
1: And the only downside, if you will, was that they probably didn't count on Stalin being Stalin and being the type of person he was.
2: Yes, uh, I don't think any of them were fans of Stalin. And also, right. you know, they they were right in that Britain was in decline. We know mm-hmm. that economically and in terms of being a global superpower, Britain didn't survive out, uh, coming out of World War II. Um, you know, it's doing okay today, but uh, it certainly doesn't hold the position of power that it did in the 19th century. Right.
1: And it was surpassed by the U.S. after World War I. So, yeah, their their time in the sun was quickly coming to an end.
2: And as we've discussed in our economics episodes and our Bretton Woods episode, the development of the A-bomb and the development of uh, the Bretton Woods Agreement... Really, after World War II, put the United States uh, in the front of the world's economy. Made it official. So these guys were right in that Britain was in decline, but they backed the wrong horse. Uh, They should have been spies for the US (laughs) instead of Russia. Before he died, Philby told Knightley... Now, you remember at the beginning of uh, the Philby episode, I mentioned philip knightley an australian journalist who wrote the first book about philby and was in correspondence mm-hmm. with him in the last decades of his life and actually went to meet him and spent a few weeks with him before he died in moscow philby told knightley i couldn't give up politics altogether i'm too much the political animal i could whine as some have that the cause has betrayed me or i could stick it out in the confident faith that the principles of the revolution would outlive the aberrations of individuals, however enormous. So in that sense, it does sound like he had a fundamental belief in socialism and that he was sticking it out for the long haul, despite the Stalins uh, and the Khrushchevs and uh, the bad turns it it had taken. He, He believed that in the long run, it would be successful.
1: Yeah, what are you going to do? you only got so many options.
2: And four months later, after he said that to Knightley, he died just before, this was like just before the collapse of the USSR. Um, According to Knightley, Philby died happy and fulfilled that he had um, done his best to Mm -hmm. support the Soviet Union. Graham Greene, who we talked about before, uh, the guy who secretly wished he'd written Wind in the Willows, um, often confused with Catherine Graham, the editor of the Washington Post, uh, who worked with Philby at MI6 and remained friends with him, even visited him several times in Russia. Mm. Greene was working on behalf of MI6 to try to get Philby to redefect. Oh my God! Back to England.
1: Let it go. <laughs> Let Imagine it that if go. they'd been
2: able to get him to redefect, uh, and so he could bring them everything he knew about the no. Soviets. Graham, I, I think the Soviets were smart enough not to
1: share anything. He he wouldn't. Have, to me, I don't think he would have brought back a lot. I just I think it was a one way street. But I'm sorry. Go ahead.
2: Green wrote the foreword to the original publication of Philip's autobiography, and in that he wrote he betrayed his country. And Philip Knightley, though, uh, in the uh, re-issue, the republication 10 years or so ago of Mm -hmm. uh, Philby's autobiography, writes in his foreword, Yes, perhaps he did, but who among us has not committed treason to something or someone more important than a country. In Philby's own eyes, he was working for a shape of things to come from which his country would benefit.
1: Yeah, I can see that. I can see that.
2: And that's it, man. That's all I got. That's all I I got, too. I know we we wanted to tackle... Patty Turner's deft on coo- to- con Sorry, 2 question, Patty. Patty. We've put it off for like four episodes. We thought this we thought ah oh, the McLean episode's gonna be a short one. Short. Turns yeah. out it's not. We we haven't forgotten you, Paddy. We will get you. Nope. I, I assume there's no rush. Um <clears throat> I just want to thank some new heroes. Oh, before mm-hmm. I do that, um a big fan of ours, uh, one of our big supporters, Craig Buddy in Canada, who was like I wrote. I think wrote the first review for our life of Caesar show on iTunes when we did it. He's yeah. been with us from the beginning. His uh, I saw on Facebook that his father passed away uh, yesterday, yeah. and uh, just wanted to give our love and best wishes to Craig. Absolutely. I even there, I shot him a copy of my new book on podcasting last week because he's also a podcaster. He's doing the Pirates mm-hmm. podcast, History of Pirates. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, we, 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 we have a um, lot of love and respect for Craig So uh, our sincere condolences, buddy we, um, we feel for you I've lost my dad I know it's it's a weird thing when you lo- as, a, as a guy, when you lose your dad If you I don't know if you're the eldest I was the only son in my family To know, shit, I'm now the patriarch of the clan That's scary <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Yeah Anyway, um, yeah our, our condolences, buddy Craig, buddy. Our buddy. <laughs> anyway, I didn't mean to make that funny, but you Craig could Craig, get it. Um, yeah. New heroes we want to thank are DEFCON 1 heroes. Simon Ockwell, Terry Torsten Seb, Adam Collier, Cameron Zilke, who uh, I won't give away his full username, but it's Cameron, not the Cameron. <laughs> Uh, Gary Luckett, uh, thank you guys for your support. And our new Defcon <laughs> 2 you. subscriber is James Caffin, uh, tattoo artist and painter down um, yeah, in Melbourne. that's pretty cool. Yeah. yeah, check out James Caffin, C A F F Y N. Google him or look him up on Facebook. Have a look at his tattoos, man. They're fucking masterpieces.
1: If I was allowed to get one, yeah.
2: You'd, you could do it. Yeah, what would you get? If you could get a tattoo, what would it be?
1: <sighs> I, I've always wanted Tweety Bird on my hip, but <clears throat> maybe something more badass now. I don't know. I don't know.
2: I told Chrissy that I would get... Um, I said, you know, I want to get a tattoos of the things, the people most important to me in my life. Napoleon, mm-hmm. Caesar, <laughs> Alexander, <laughs> Stalin, Castro, <laughs> Chomsky.
1: There we go. She probably just Maxwell, walked away after the second name and just kept going.
2: Maxwell Smart. Uh, there
1: you go. Well, yeah, I, I get that one. I mean, who wouldn't?
2: She said uh, Vic Mackey. Uh, um, Archer. <laughs> I <was thinking> <laughs> McNulty. <laughs> Omar. Right. The, the real person
1: who wrote The Wind in the Willows.
2: <laughs> um, yeah, she was like, so not, Tell- not your wife and children.
1: It's like nah, yeah. nah. Yeah.
2: I, I don't yeah. need to remember you. I'm around you all the time. I see
1: you. Yeah. I see. you, I'm around you all the time. In fact, sometimes I would think too much. But anyway,
2: I'm. I, I'm. To. I'm. You know, I, James and I were talking about getting a tattoo. I'm just not a tattoo kind of. I can't imagine. No. For 20 years, I've tried to imagine what ta- tattoo I'd get, and I just can't imagine. Yeah. No, getting a tattoo. It's not my cup of tea. I just can't imagine anything that, anything that I that. care about enough that I'd want it painfully exactly. painted on my body with needles. It,
1: and then later on it will sag I mean who who wants that so um,
2: yeah yeah. well maybe Um, a review uh, Heisenberg 31 best podcasts ever I've been listening to Rain Cam's podcasts, also known as the Amazing Trilogy, starting in Turkey in 2013 and have listened continuously to the life of Caesar and just started listening to the Cold War podcast at the appropriate time of just before going to a communist country, China. But nonetheless, every podcast is always a blast to listen to and extremely entertaining Max Farquhar. Now, nice name. Well, yes, nice name. Now, uh, I'll tell you a little bit about Max because I'm going to go see Max on the weekend. Max, his twin brother and his dad live in Brisbane. Dad's a fan of the shows. Uh, The boys are fans of the shows. They're, I think, a year younger than my twins. I think they're 14, 15, something like that. Uh, we've never met. We've often talked about trying to hook the twins up, but you know my twins aren't interested in being social because they're like <laughs> me. They're like, "What? Meet people? We don't want to meet people." But got uh, electronic thing here. Uh, Max uh, emailed me a while back. Said they were going to China over the school holidays here, and I said, "Bring me back something cool and communist." And um, he's got me a, a Mao Zedong propaganda poster. That, nice uh, that I'm going to go uh, yes yeah, yeah, signed by mal <laughs> he dug him up put a pen in his hand said sign this thing mal uh, so I'm going to go uh, I'm going to go collect that from him hopefully over the weekend he also bought a chessboard back with him so we're going to have a game of chess so that's oh, cool. young nice. max
1: Something look forward to.
2: So, uh, Max, I would bring you a coffee mug, but I don't have any on me. But we will get you a thank. I think they may they've got coffee mugs already. This family, I am not sure about a Cold War one, but we will get you a Cold War one, Max. Don't forget. Also, I want to offer to send a thank you gift to Stuart Gettings, who shared Mm -hmm. uh, our Cold War poster on Ah. on Facebook. So, thank thank you. you, Stuart. Shoot that to us so shoot us an email email at coldwar.com, and um, we will send you a, a thank you I just remembered I've got to make sure that we put an ad for podster magazine in our life of Caesar show today
1: uh, along
2: with the uh, hello fresh ad because their magazine came out I haven't said I have to check out that podster magazine check out podster magazine. Yeah. There's a bit. Absolutely. Our ads should be in it. I haven't had a look at that. I think that's out this month. Yeah. All right. Cool. Uh, fuck. That's it.
1: <laughs> Next week. And that's how you end the episode, people. Yeah.
2: Fuck. Next week, uh, we will be doing the Yalta conference. I swear to fucking Christ, people. <laughs> no. Next no. week, we will be doing no. the actual motherfucking Snakes on a Plane well, Yalta yeah. conference.
1: We're going to start it anyway.
2: Yes. No more fucking about. No more spies. (laughs) No No more more Pomeranian dogs. No No more meth fueled Nazis. No. We will get into it. I swear to Christ.
0: Word. An iron curtain has descended across the continent.